What's up, Law Nation? I hope, as always, you are having a fantastic day, a fantastic week. We have an awesome episode for you today. As highly driven, highly successful, and often overachieving individuals, you know, we sometimes have problems with delegating. We want to do everything ourselves because, well, frankly, we feel we are the only and maybe at the very least, the best person to get the job done. However, if we really want to achieve and prosper and take our business to the next level, we need to learn to delegate and outsource. Additionally, as attorneys, doctors, engineers, etc., I believe that many of us get boxed into our profession and don't consider what else we are good at and what else we can use our knowledge and skills for to produce another stream of passive income. Well, our wonderful guest today is Dina Eisenberg, the CEO and principal of Your Ombuddy, a leading ombud consulting and design firm. Dina is also a leader and emotional intelligence coach who helps people become empathy-driven leaders and is a master of self-discovery and delegation. All right, here we go. This is the Passive Income Attorney Podcast, where you'll discover the secrets and strategies of the ultra-wealthy on how they build streams of passive income to give them the freedom we all want. Attorney Seth Bradley will help you end the cycle of trading your time for money so you can make money while you sleep. Start living the good life on your own terms. Now, here's your host, Seth Bradley. Hi, Dina. Welcome. Hey, Seth. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and talk to you and your listeners. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Mm. You know, I think uh, the topics that we're going to cover today are so interesting. Um, really going to help people you know, change their thoughts about, you know, passive income and delegation. And hopefully people are going to take action after this. So, of course, I want to be here and be helpful. Yeah, that's the key is taking action. I mean, a lot of people listen to podcasts and read books and do this stuff all day long. And it's good for you. But until you actually do something about it, you know, it's not going to change your life. Exactly. And we're all about changing lives, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you're a fully recovered attorney, which I think a lot of our listeners <laughs> are probably jealous of. Tell us, uh, yeah. tell, us a, tell us a little bit about your previous law practice and, you know, what you loved about it, what you hated about it. Ooh, you know, I loved law school. I know that's a weird thing to say, but I really love the intellectual challenge of it. I became a prosecutor and I was prosecuting doctors for sexual misconduct. Now, usually people are like, no, that never happens. I'm afraid to say that happens more than you would expect. Uh, my clients were women Sadly. who had been, yeah, abused by their doctors in a variety of ways. And it was really noble work. I loved being with them. I learned so much about integrity and self being self-honoring from those women. But the downside was I started to have some funky feelings about men. And, you know, it's like, I think I still want to like men. So maybe I should get a different job. So I transitioned from, you know, practicing law into being a mediator. I had taken mediation training. Um, I was on the U.S. Postal Service panel for mediation. And so I really still wanted to help people figure out problems, which is what a mediator does, and help them get clear on the goals and the things that they wanted to accomplish. So it was kind of a perfect fit. Yeah, that's great. That, that's awesome. I'm glad you still found, you know, a way to use that law degree and transition into something a little bit more meaningful and kind of suits your personality. 
Yeah, exactly. That's it. Um, you know, I'm I'm really someone who brings the calm, uh, brings the optimism to my work, and I think people really appreciate that in this day and age when you don't get a lot of time to actually talk and express how you're feeling. And most people, when they say "how are you doing," what they really mean is next. Um, so having that space to and a professional help you sit down and think about what you want, clarify your vision, and then make a roadmap to how can I accomplish these goals, um, I think is really useful. And, you know, it's kind of my superpower. Yeah, yeah. That's a great attribute to have, especially, you know, going into mediation uh, to keep that calm and to kind of put that on, you know, everybody around you, so they have the same, <laughs> yeah. the same and types of feelings. Now I became an ombudsman, it's even more. So, you know, I used to be doing it individually for people. Now as an ombudsman, I do the same thing for organizations for all their employees. So continuing to bring the calm, bring the optimism and really empower people to be their own best advocate. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Maybe take us down the pathway, how you kind of continue to transition out of the law and and into business and, you know, created mm -hmm. passive income for yourself. Absolutely. So I was a mediator for law practices, particularly partnerships where the partners had some issues. And I loved doing that, but I kept getting these messages from large corporations like American Standard saying, you know, we learned about your conflict work. We'd really like you to come and help us create a conflict curriculum. So I said no enough times that by the time American Standard asked me, I was like, okay, just do it. Um, and so that's how I got into writing a conflict curriculum for organizations that wanted to become more conflict uh, competent and have their HR teams and ER teams be able to deal with conflicts better. That led to, to working with um, manufacturers like Polaroid and Lexmark and Coca-Cola, helping them help their HR teams and ER teams be more conflict uh, competent and grow so they could help employees. That led to banking. So and then I became, you know, doing the same thing within a banking context. And one of my best clients was Bank of Boston. They were about to merge with Fleet. Probably people know both of those names. And Bank of Boston really, truly was a hard client for me because they totally got it. They were all about the values, you know, improving and empowering people. I could stop anyone in the hall and say, like, what are the five values of this company and how do you live them every day? And people could answer me. So that was really attractive. When they merged with Fleet, Fleet was more of a numbers company. They were very numbers driven. It was about project over people all the time. And Bob was like, you know, they won't get us. So we really need you to come in as a corporate ombudsman um, and sort of help from our side. So they understand who we are as an organization and we can merge because, you know, 95% of mergers fail based on culture problems. You know, it makes sense from a business standpoint, but people don't really take the time to figure out, can the people work together? And so that's how I became a senior vice president and corporate ombudsman for a fleet. And then fleet was eaten up by Bank of America and then I was serving about 60,000 employees across the domestic United States. Amazing job, um, very challenging and taxing, but you know, I loved every minute of it. Yeah, yeah. And then how did you continue to kind of transition out of that? Because I know that you, know, you didn't want to stay in that very high, high demand, high stress type of, it, type of work. So 
It was. So I actually kind of retired for a bit. But then I started getting calls from folks saying, like, do you know an ombudsman or would you be our ombudsman? And so I decided I had some great ombuds friends. And I thought, okay, well, let me just try to be a matchmaker. And the very first organization that reached out to me, um, you know, I, I put together a portfolio of my, my ombuds and I sent it off to them. And the president of Berkeley College of Music said, yeah, you're nice, but we're, we were kind of hoping to get you. Um, and you know, I went in to meet with him and it was amazing experience because I don't know if you've ever been in a music college before, but there's music everywhere you go. I and have not, but that's I, cool. Isn't it? Right? I mean, everywhere there's somebody singing, there's somebody playing something. And I was just charmed. And I thought, okay, this is a smaller environment. It's 4,000 people. Um, I think I could be make an impact here. And so that's how I moved from 60,000 down to four. I also took on a smaller private company, a law firm that had about at tops 10. So I got a chance to see like, which do you like better an academic setting or a private company setting? I really like them both. And so now in my own company, um, you're on buddy. I work with a variety of smaller organizations from an academic institution where I think there's about 4,000 people uh, to a high cut company where there's about 350 and then another biopharma company, which is around 500 and you know i'm talking to um a networking organization that's around 5,000. so lots of different sizes lots of different aims and that's what keeps it exciting uh for me very cool very cool um for some of our listeners that don't know what an ombudsman is maybe you can define that i'm happy to first okay. it's a very weird <laughs> name I'm just gonna go and wreck. It's a very weird name for a very important service. So when people are like, um, um, mm, how to say it? I just say, say I'm buddy, right? That's what the yeah. name of my company is. I'm your um buddy, which actually really is a good way to think of it because your ombudsman can be like a friend. So it's important to know that the role of an ombudsman is to provide a safe, neutral, independent, and confidential resource within an organization so employees can raise their concerns. They can get information about resources within the, the organization. They can get coaching on how to resolve conflicts or how to communicate better. And the organization benefits because the employee population gets more satisfied. So turnover goes down. Because I'm there as the ombudsman, I'm able to give them an early warning about issues and trends that make them vulnerable because maybe there's a gap in their policy or they're doing some sort of procedure that they don't know is actually impacting their um, community in a negative way. And so they're actually able to fix these things when there are small problems before they get very big and costly uh, and maybe even litigation problems. Sure. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, like I said, I, I honestly had to look it up and I've been an attorney for years. <laughs> Like, You're not the only one, Seth. <laughs> I just wrote an article on LinkedIn today uh, and yesterday, you know, basically telling people what an ombuds is and what we yeah. can and can't do. Yeah, yeah. Well, it looks like you've successfully transitioned into something that you, you love and you have a passion for and you enjoy and it's not necessarily high stress and all that kind of stuff that a lot of our listeners, whether they're a doctor or an attorney, has to deal with on a daily basis. So that's that's amazing. Yeah, I think, you know, I would say it's medium stress because oftentimes okay. people are coming to me when they're at their wit's end. So maybe they're not behaving in the way that they would love to behave. 
the issues that they bring almost always have an impact on their life. And so they're looking um, really, really for someone to give them that clarity and help walk them through. Often people come with an assumption like, this can't be fixed. And it's like, <laughs> no, let's talk about it. It's likely to be fixed. And if it can't, we'll figure out something else. So there's a little bit of pressure. I, I feel um, really committed to making sure that people who work with me have a good outcome. Yeah, yeah. Now, you, you also speak with attorneys about how to kind of create other passive income streams and what they can kind of carve out, carve out of their existing skills to create I passive do. income streams. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I do. It came, absolutely. Um, I really think that lawyers need to have multiple income streams. And I know that's not something that they talk about in law school. At least they didn't when I was there. Um, they never wanted when I was there. The message was, if you have to sort of sell your services, you're a bad lawyer. Um, and that's just not true, particularly in today's climate. So if you were in one of the practice areas that when the pandemic hit and you were going to court or you're seeing clients in person, your practice took a big hit. If you'd had some sort of passive income product, you could have maintained cash flow and, and maybe you know had money saved to sort of tide you over until whenever there's going to be a change in the environment. Now, lawyers are always like, I cannot do that. I'm afraid for my license. And I hear that. I do. I wouldn't want anybody to do anything that puts their very expensive license in jeopardy. However, there are a couple of different ways that you can maintain your license, educate your target market, your community, and make some extra money. Yeah. Um, so give us an example of, of one of those types of income streams they create, either okay. from a pa either from a past client or or uh, just, you know, something, a common thing that you see. OK, I'll give you two. Is that okay. all right? Yeah, that's okay. great. Cool. So for folks who are like, I could not possibly create a product. This is for you. <laughs> so, you know, I was working with a, a law, a law firm, a lawyer who had a small firm. And she wanted to generate more income from her firm, but she was sort of struggling. And we were talking about the fact that she was doing everything, like every other thing besides practicing law, she had her fingers on, um, you know, from doing the social media, to doing all the billing. And once we looked, started looking deeply into her practice, we realized she hardly had any time to bill, right? That's why she wasn't making any money. So one way we created some passive income, and I should just say that Passive income really isn't passive, right? You have to do something to acquire the income. Sure. So I don't want people to think like, I'll hands off. That's not the case. It does mean it's a little bit easier to create this income mm -hmm. and it, it generates itself on an ongoing basis without a lot of effort from you. So when we looked at her practice, what we figured out was that if she brought in a billing person, a clerk or a legal assistant to do the billing, um, she could actually free up her time and bill more hours. If she brought on a paralegal who was experienced and who could take over some of the other work that she'd been doing on her own, the drafting, blah, blah, she could actually bill out that person at just below market rate. So by hiring the legal secretary to do the billing, she got more billable hours back into her schedule. By hiring the paralegal, she was able to bill for that person's work. And, she was adding like $2,500 a week back to her revenues because she wasn't doing the things the paralegal was doing and she was getting 
be able to bill for that time. So for somebody who's like, I don't want to create a project, look about into bringing in help who you can bill at a lower rate. Of course, you have to supervise a paralegal. So it'll still be some of your time, but you're going to be able to bill that person out at almost market rate. So it's worth doing. For somebody who's like, I want to have a product. Yay for you. I'm impressed with you. So here's the, the tool that you can use. Right now, online education is a billion, that's B, billion dollar industry. And I know lawyers are very careful about not giving legal advice over. But here's the thing that you can do is you can help someone understand their problem through a course or a checklist or a challenge so that they begin to understand they do have a reason to seek out a lawyer. And because you've been the lawyer who's been advising them and making them problem aware, guess who they're gonna come to when they wanna solve that problem? You. So, you know, a course that says, maybe an estate planning course now, cause that's so hot. People yeah. are like, oh, I skipped, I skipped getting my will. Now I think I better get it now. Yeah. You could, you know, talk about the different instances that someone would wanna get with an estate planning lawyer and, you know, all the different things you would need that person for. So for instance, if you die without any heirs, uh, what happens to your money? You need an estate planning attorney to help figure that out. Well, that's something that you could write a small e-course or e-book or do a challenge on to make people aware of. Those kinds of things are great passive income products for lawyers because it demonstrates your expertise it educates that market before they get to you and then makes you top of mind choice. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you can create something like that, where, you know, you get some sort of a residual income from the course and then also on the back end, they see you now as an expert and they hire you as their attorney. It's, you know, a double whammy there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You get two bites of the apple, as they say. Yeah. Oh, this is my intern. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Super cute. <laughs> uh, so, you know, a lot of attorneys and doctors and, you know, high paid professionals, they just, you know, they put their head down and they're like, work hard. And, you know, they only know one thing. And, you know, how do, how do you help them get over that, you know, conservative nature and, and get over kind of that hump, that mental hurdle? Yeah, we're, we're actually trained as lawyers to kind of abuse ourselves, right? In law school, it's at no no one asks you if you're fine. First off, uh, secondly, you just expect to do expect to do more and more and more work. And the messaging is, if you have to ask for help, you're not very good. Maybe you don't belong here. So one thing I try to say to other professionals, um, including lawyers and doctors, is you don't need to believe that messaging at all. Everybody needs help from time to time. And in fact, if you're not getting help, are you really serving your clients? So for instance, if you're a doctor or a lawyer, what your client is coming to you for is to solve a very complex problem that requires your problem solving ability, your creativity, your understanding of the key elements of that. If you are exhausted because you've done every doggone thing and you're burnt out, how can you really be helpful to this person? honestly, right? So you really just need to think about it from a different perspective. And there's the practical point of view, which is eventually your body will say, we don't think so, no. And you will develop some sort of illness 
And if you're lucky, it'll be a minor one. But if you're not lucky, um, like I wasn't because I was so stubborn, you develop a major illness that is now a lifetime illness that is health, you know, life-threatening, life-altering. So if you don't want that circumstance, the best thing to do is really try to change, first change your mindset because nothing else, none of the tactics work unless you change your mindset. And start thinking about yourself as your best asset something that you want to protect and safeguard, however that happens, whether it means you delegate more and you bring on staff, or it means you devote more scheduled time to self-care, you have to take care of your assets. Same way you take care of your car because you want to keep it longer, you have to take care of your asset, which is yourself. Make some sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and hopefully it doesn't take, you know, a, a major health issue to, to culminate before you make that change. I hope, but you know, one of the reasons I started talking about my illness was because I wanted people to see that it's real. If you don't pay attention, your body will actually just say no. And you know, as much as lawyers and perhaps doctors too, we think that we rule everything with our minds, that intellect can solve any problem. And that's just not true. That's not true. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've seen that, you know, during your consultations that you, you know, you help you help your clients clarify their real goals and reveal their hidden obstacles. Could you maybe speak about that for a little bit? Yeah, um, you know, we get a lot, a lot of programming and we, we think about what we want in our practice. And usually, and I hate to say this, but <laughs> it's a little bit true. Lawyers are a little bit like lemmings, right? We just follow along <laughs> with the rest of the crowd. And we really don't think whether or not the things we're doing are good for us or we, whether we actually want them. We just don't want to be out of sorts with everybody else. So really when I'm helping someone look at their practice and they're deciding to hire an associate, for instance, they'll say, I, like, I want to go get her. Like, okay, everybody wants to go get her. <laughs> what does it exactly mean to you? And then people have no idea what that means. And then we sort of talk through their ideas and how they got to it. And they're like, oh, what I really mean is I want somebody who's going to be as dedicated to my practice as I am. I want somebody who is proactive. Um, I want somebody who is detail-oriented. Those are things that you can actually go out into the market and find. It's hard to find a go-getter. Then you have to be clear about what happens when you get that person. Are you actually going to allow them to do what you've hired them to do? Because oftentimes I find that lawyers will hire somebody who seems to fit the mark, but then they don't let them do anything, right? Yeah, yeah, you can't change anything. No, mm -mm, this is the way we do it. Well, there's no reason to hire anybody if you're not going to let them bring their expertise and experience to you. That's part of what you're paying for. And being able to let go is really about learning to trust yourself, right? I made a good decision. This person will be helpful and an asset to me, and then letting them prove it, right? You can always give them feedback, um, what I would call observational feedback, not just yelling or the sandwich crap, um, but really helping, asking them like, why did you do things differently? Help me understand that. And then you can adjust. If it, you still don't agree, you can always just say, no, do it my way. But you have to allow someone to have some authority and control over their professional life where they won't be happy and you won't get what you're paying for. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's kind of like, a, almost like you're trying to delegate, but you're faking it. Like you're making that hire to delegate and then you 
when it comes into practice, you don't actually do it. <laughs> That's exactly it. For some reason, we love being the bottleneck. We got to touch everything. Yeah. Otherwise, we feel like it, it, it won't be good. Well, guess what? Some things you're just bad at and somebody else should be doing. Like social media, there's no lawyer who should be doing, or doctor for that matter, who should be doing their own social media. One, yeah. you don't understand it. Two, if you have to be the one creating the content, then you're, you're never going to get anything out because you're already too busy to write the content, right? Yeah. So it's so much better to delegate that to someone who, one, understands the social media period, understands the changes because it changes so often what's effective and actually has the time to do the three things that you need to do. Like you have to curate and then you have to um, create the graphics and then you have to distribute the social media. That's a lot of work that you don't need to be doing if you're the practice owner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's dive a little deeper into the, you know, the delegation and the outsourcing. I mean, you know, most of us are, are competent, intelligent, and, you know, we think that we can only do these tasks and we're the best at doing them. So it's just really tough for us to get over that, that hurdle to, to delegate it to somebody else because we think only we can do it. How do you help them kind of, you know, get over that and, and just let go? I help people see that that's actually a fear, right? We're saying, oh, well, only I can do it because I do it best. What that really means is that you're saying, I am afraid that somebody else will screw this up that I won't be able to communicate to them how to get it done. And for my clients, the way that we sort of erase that fear is we have them create project legends, which is the story of the project. And it goes so much farther beyond a checklist, right? So it's not just do this, do this, this. It's the rationale. Why are we doing this? What does it impact in the business? Because adults need to have context. We need to know that our contribution means something. So if you do this right, this is what happens. If you do this wrong, this is what happens. That's part of telling the legend. Then giving the step-by-step, -step, if you're used to doing something on your own all the time, well, guess what? You don't really know what you're doing because you're just doing it on autopilot, right? <laughs> so taking the time to write the project legend gives you a chance to look at each and every step and decide like, am I still doing it that way? Or just, I remember that I'm doing it that way. And if you forget, you know, sometimes we have these tasks where we only do it like maybe once a quarter. Then you have to figure out how you did it last time, which is such a sure. waste of time. If you write a project legend, not only can you give it to somebody else and say, here's, I'm delegating this to you, but the next time you have to do that project, you're like, oh, all right, let me just pull out the legend. Oh, yeah, this is what I did last time, boom, right? So creating that project legend is a story of it. And the reason I call it a legend is because does anybody really want to stand, write a standard operating procedure? No. <laughs> No, no one wants to write that. No one don't like to, to call that. it that either. <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, it's so horrifyingly boring that I had to give it a different name. <laughs> and human beings are hardwired for story. We've learned that way for centuries. That's how we learn things. So we just make this project into a story so that you can fold in your thinking, the rationale for doing it, all the prohibitions, like don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And here's where you get the resources if you get a question, because that's the other place where people get stuck. They delegate to somebody, but then they don't give them a place to ask questions and get answers, except for themselves. Then they're yeah. mad because the person's coming in every five minutes saying, well, what about this? <laughs> what about that? Like, eh. Just put it into your project legend, and then it's all there for that person. Uh, and if right. you have more people on your team, you can say, and 
If it's not in the project legend, you don't get your question answered there, go see your buddy, right? That, that would not be me though. Go see your buddy yeah. and that person will help you understand. Gotcha. Yeah, so that's, that keeps you from having to reteach yourself and reteach the next person as well. And I, I think through that process, you also can figure out what you should and maybe should not delegate as well. Exactly. I always tell people that when you're starting out, you need to delegate something that's meaningful, like you need to get it done, but it is low risk. Because at the same time that you're delegating this, you're learning how to delegate and be good at that. You're learning how to be good at giving instructions and feedback. So you don't want to stress yourself out by giving them a high level task where every day, you know, like you're checking every five minutes, did you get that done or is it done right? That's kind of a waste of everybody's energy. So start out with smaller tasks that are necessary, but low risk. That's again, why social media is so easy to delegate at first because you need to be on social media, but if someone sends out the wrong graphic on you know, Twitter or Facebook, it's not the end of the world for other ones, right? So they can learn how to be better at communicating your wishes with people. Um, also, you, know, you have to think about the monetary portion of tasks. So most of us lawyers like to keep the $10 task. We want to keep the $100 task. We want to keep the $1,000 task. And you have to think about, well, if I do this task, well, how much is it actually worth to me? You want to get rid of anything that's not a $1,000 task, right? So a good example of that is Canva, my nemesis. Everybody <laughs> wants to jump onto Canva and create something. And you know, Canva is designed to waste your time because the design initially looks great, but nobody ever just takes the initial design, right? Am I right, Seth? Yeah, they yeah. tweak something, then they tweak something else, then it doesn't look so good, then they got to keep tweaking it until it kind of looks mediocre, and then you don't use it all. And then that's two I've hours. I've done it myself. <laughs> I, I know, I know. This is, this is the concern, because we're like, it'll take five minutes, it's already designed. I, I can do that. Well, two hours later, that's two billable hours later, uh, you wasted a lot of time, wasted a lot of money, and you have nothing to show for it. Yeah, and it's at doing something that you're just not very good at anyway. So the result is not going to be as good as if you delegated it to somebody that does it for a living anyways. Yep. I mean, you could hop onto Upwork right now. And I know some other colleagues where what they sell are branded social media packages. You're going to get you know, a, a brand that looks like your brand. It, they're going to give you the Instagram little graphic. They're going to give you the one for Twitter. They're going to give you a Facebook ad. And every month, they're just going to replenish those for you. So you never have to worry about it again. That's worth paying for, right? Yeah. Yeah. And since we're talking about delegation, you mentioned Upwork. I mean, a lot of our audience probably doesn't even realize what Upwork is and all the different services that you can find on Upwork um, for, you know, a little bit of money and you can pay. I think there's even attorneys on there that offer their services. There's all Absolutely. kinds of stuff on there that you can find for, you know, remote work and remote help. Absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned that. So yes, Upwork is my platform of choice. It is an outsourcing marketplace. People have probably have heard of Fiverr. It's not my preferred marketplace anymore. They've changed over the 10 years. And so I can't recommend them anymore. But I do love Upwork. You're going to find lawyers on there. You're going to find paralegals on there. So if you had like a, a case where you just need a little extra paralegal help, um, just to tie you to this one matter, you could hop on Upwork, 
hire somebody and then when they're done, they're, you're done with them, right? On demand help. So you're always in control of the budget. People worry like, well, I spend too much. No, because it's you deciding how much you're going to spend and when you're going to spend it. Um, what I like about Upwork is that they have some built-in tools that make it easier for you to find the right people. So I try to write, recommend to folks that they set the filters. So every search has filters. So you can say, hey, I only want somebody who has a 96, a 90 plus success rate. I only want somebody who's worked a thousand hours. I only want somebody who's made more than a thousand dollars on the site, right? And I only want somebody who's worked in the last month. What that means is you're going to get someone who's currently working, high rated, and good at their job, right? That narrows down the searching for you quite a bit. The other thing that Upwork tries to do, which is a little bit comical, it's like it's a double-sided uh, platform. So they're serving you as a client, but they're also serving their seller base. So they're always trying to push you to do an open listing, which means anybody can apply. Well, the downside of that I learned the hard way is that everybody does apply whether they're fully qualified or not. And before I understood how the platform worked, you know, I was writing back to each person saying, oh, so sorry, you know, can't know, yeah, you just don't fit. It took me a week to find one person because you know, I did an open listing. Now I, I recommend my clients don't do an open listing where you're posting to everybody, do an invite only, right? So you're doing the posting, but then you've already screened folks maybe five or six folks on the platform and you are inviting them to your job. It's not open to everybody that yeah. cuts down on all that mystery gosh about having to go through a long list of screeners. And you've already decided these folks for the most part meet the criteria. Yeah. And if you put your legend together appropriately, you already have the steps that you can forward on to those VAs and that remote help um, so that they know what exactly what you expect and what, uh, what kind of product you're, you're looking for. Looking for. Exactly yeah. it. Don't do hourly projects unless you're feeling really experienced on the platform. Do a fixed price and always use the milestone so you can dole out the cash as things happen. What I like to do is give someone a little bit of money at the start of the project. Um, and then I don't uh, do the next cash payment or you know online payment until I've seen some work product. And I've had a chance to review it because that's when I have a chance to make adjustments with that person. If you don't use milestones, you might go through the whole thing, they create whatever it is that you want, and then you get it and it's useless. And then, then they're, they're expecting payment because they finished the task, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's hard to correct it at the end. So that's why I recommend using the milestones. Yeah, no, those are all awesome tips. Awesome, awesome. It's time for the Freedom Four. Well, let's jump into the Freedom Four questions. Um, in an alternative universe where you weren't in the businesses that you have created for yourself now, what else would you be doing? Oh, that's so easy, Seth. <laughs> <laughs> I would be a food and travel blogger. I love oh, to awesome. eat. Um, I love <laughs> to travel. Too. And so I just think that would be like the perfect job to have. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking now, like I'd love to go to Hong Kong. Uh, I'm a big ramen fan. I'm totally obsessed with it. So Tokyo, um, yeah, that'd be, that'd be my job. I agree. I'm right there with you. I see like some Instagram accounts where, you know, that's what they're doing with their lives. I'm like, oh, that's so awesome. Like, yeah, there must be some downside, but I haven't yeah, seen sure. it yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they don't show that on the Instagram account. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm big on health and fitness. What do you do to keep your mind and body healthy? Oh, you look, you look fantastic. So. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. So I am really a big meditation and yoga fan and awesome. I practice EFT. So for folks who don't know what that is, it's emotional freedom technique. Um, it actually does work. Tapping works. It got me past the fear of flying. So I really recommend that for anybody who's feeling anxious in these crazy times and wants a way to recenter. Interesting. I actually haven't heard of that. I'll have to look that up. Ooh, okay. So yeah, <laughs> EFT is just doing this and holding oh, certain okay. thoughts in your mind. What it does is reset your nervous central nervous system so that you are able to calm down. And gotcha. then it gives your brain a chance to find a better thought. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like a distraction and then, you know, just overcome that fear. Yeah. Just reprogram your brain. So, you know, when yeah. I was afraid of flying and I was pretty sure I was going to be crashing, um, I learned to sort of think about the fact that even though I was afraid of flying and afraid of crashing, that the pilot had training and would know what to do if there was an issue. And just reprogramming myself from being afraid to, it's yeah. not your job to fly the plane. The <laughs> pilot knows how to fly the plane and he has a plan, allowed me to fly again. Cool, very cool, very cool. All right, so where, where were you at in your business five years ago and where do you see yourself five years from now? I was kind of still enjoying semi-retirement. So I, you okay. know, you can retire as many times as you want. So I was retired again, but I was getting itchy. Like I needed to have something more to do. So I was just beginning to talk about delegation. Um, and that's because we'd had a personal tragedy. It was like top of mind for me, what happens when you don't have a delegation plan or you don't have help and how that impacts your family and puts them at risk. So I was wanting to talk more about that. And so that's where it was five years ago. And then five years from now, I will be running a multi-million dollar ombuds consulting um, service. And I'm, I see the beginnings of it now because of COVID in lots of ways, people recognize that their culture is maybe not what they want it to be. Employees certainly are now saying, it's not what I signed up for. I need to be someplace else. And progressive organizations, companies, law firms, are now beginning to recognize that they actually have to pay attention to employee satisfaction and their culture and their values if they would like to continue to function. So I'm getting more and more requests. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in growing the business larger. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you'll achieve that even sooner than five years. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, last, how has passive income made your life better? Ooh, you know what? <laughs> I'm laughing because as you said that I heard the sound in my that I always hear. So on my phone, I have the Stripe app. And when somebody buys something, you get like a ching, a ching sound. So that sound <laughs> is so calming because <laughs> I just know that no matter what all is going on in my life, I have products that people need and want and make their lives better. And that I have a process for being able to sell that, whether, you know, I'm having a nap or I'm going for a walk or I'm talking with clients, and there's that ease knowing that, you know what, there's income coming in. So yeah. that's really how it's changed my life, just made it more peaceful. 
That's great. That's great. All right. Well, this is an awesome show. I really appreciate you coming on, Dina. Thank you so much. Seth. It was yeah. fun to talk with you. Yeah. Could you tell the audience where they can learn more about delegation and, and you know, talking about passive income streams and a little bit more about your business and becoming an on buddy? <laughs> That's right. So anybody who's interested in talking more about becoming an on buddy can uh, visit one of my sites. So there's law from ombuds.com that's the current site in about two weeks we'll have your ombuddy.com up and on both those sites you can learn more about working with an ombudsman um, how we serve clients and the different services we offer if you're curious about any of that and just want to chat me up you can hit me up on linkedin i'm always happy to meet new people i love spreading the word about you know, what an ombudsman can do or how to become an ombudsman uh, for folks who want more help with their delegation work, uh, you should um, ask me for a free consult. And the way to do that is speak with bit.ly forward slash speak with Dina. Um, I still do one-to-one -one consults for folks who want to figure out how to outsource a certain thing. Um, and those, I think those are the main ways to get me. You know, free consult with bit.ly forward slash speak with Dina. Heading over to LinkedIn to connect with me or visiting lawfirmombuds.com to learn more about how your organization can benefit from having an ombudsman. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. We'll drop all that in the show notes. Thanks, Thank Dina. You. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you too, my friend. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Wow. Dina is such a pleasure and a truly unique and beautiful soul. We learned so much about self-discovery and finding other ways to leverage your skills and knowledge to create an out-of-the-box secondary income stream, as well as some amazing delegation tips from a true master of the craft. If you'd like to learn more about creating passive income streams while still succeeding in your career, reach out to me at Seth at PassiveIncomeAttorney.com to get access to our free guide to getting started in alternative asset investing. Until next time, celebrate the journey. Thank you for listening to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast with Seth Bradley. Do you want more ideas on how to generate multiple streams of passive income? Then jump over to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com for show notes and resources. Then apply for the private Facebook community by searching for the Passive Income Attorney on Facebook. And we'll see you on the next episode.